Okay, well, we're in uh, this, finishing off this Mark series. We're in Mark 16. It is, is we've kind of journeyed to the cross and everything we looked at last week, it kind of culminated in the cross. And then we can sometimes treat the resurrection like the, like the extra bit, like, oh yeah, the cross and oh yeah, that bit. No, 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 it's the death and resurrection of Jesus is the, is the sum, the centrality of the Christian message. And if you are a Christian here today, this is what all your hope is in. And if you're not a Christian here today, you need to know that the, the transformation that you, uh, you heard in those testimonies earlier of those lives changed is because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was not because they decided just to become a better person. It was not because they decided, uh, hey, I, I can sort myself out. That was literally at the heart of the testimony. I could not sort myself out, but God. And this is where it all is. So whether you're a skeptic, you're so welcome, whether you're, you're kind of, I've just been dragged along because it was a promise of a free lunch afterwards and it was the only way I could come. Whether it was like, okay, I'll do Christmas because that's carols and I get that Easter's important, so that's the other one I'll agree to come to. If that's you, you're so welcome today. I just want to say that this is worth exploring and this is what you really need to kind of get your head around. Everybody has a worldview, an answer for uh, kind of, all the reasons why we exist and, and what happens after we die and all the big questions in life. Everybody has a worldview. The Christian worldview centers around this and it has an answer for every single thing. Sometimes the answer is, we're not really sure, but Jesus wins. And at the very least, today I want to uh, kind of, if you are a Christian, I want to encourage you and stir you again. If you're not a Christian, at the very least, I want you to kind of think, I need to explore this a bit more. You heard Alpha referenced a couple of times. We run Alpha courses, an opportunity to explore because you never know. You never know. And Jesus has the power to change lives. Verse 1 of, of Mark chapter 16. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. And just to make the point, it says, it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. He's an angel. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This story of the resurrection is told in the Gospels. And this mark is the punchiest and the shortest of the Gospels. And in these just eight verses, it contains the whole life-transforming message of Easter. And the whole life-transforming message of Christianity. And Mark makes the incredible claim that this is history. In fact, he says this is the defining moment in history. The, the death and resurrection of Jesus. The moment that changed the world. And he says the power to change the world and your world is contained in these verses. That's a big claim. And it's a claim that we, if you're a Christian here today, consider to be truly good news. This is, first thing I want to say, this is history. This is history that changed the world. As we mentioned earlier, right across the world, a couple of billion of us are celebrating this moment. And before Jesus came, and after actually, dozens of other messianic mo movements, led by people who claimed to be the Messiah, kind of came and went. 
And they came with someone saying, hey, I'm, I'm the Messiah, look at me, follow me. And people did, or some, and then he died. And they went, oh, and they just gave up and went home. Because the leader's dead. Christianity's a little bit different. The leader comes along, gathers some followers, and at the end of his life, he doesn't actually have that many of them at all. 120 of them, that's it. And then he dies, and boom, the thing explodes all around the world, in every part of the world, and it still is today. Billions of us, many years later. Why is that? It's because this leader died and then came back from the dead. These women came along to the tomb. Verse 5 tells us that they see a young man who's an angel, and he says to them, you're looking for Jesus. Verse 6, he says, he's not here. He's risen. You see that place he ought to be? That's where his body was. That's where it still should be, because that's what happens with dead bodies. They don't move. They stay there. Well, he's not there. He was dead. Now he's alive. And the whole basis and the whole hope of our faith rests on this. Jesus is not where he's supposed to be. He was supposed to be still in the tomb. He's supposed to be rotting, dead, and he's not there. In fact, the whole basis of our faith is on this. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 14 says, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Everything I'm doing right now, it's in vain. And your faith is in vain. Everything that you're doing right now, exercising faith, it's all in vain. He says in verse 19 of 1 Corinthians 15, If this is not true, we of all people are to be pitied. Not just like, well, no, pitied. Like, what are you doing? But this happened. Now, lots of people don't believe that. Lots of people around here right now, they're enjoying their Easter eggs. And they don't, they don't necessarily believe that. Their worldview doesn't allow for it. Because dead people don't come back to life, right? I mean, it just kind of doesn't happen. At best, this is a, a nice story. Kind of a legend. At worst, it's all a terrible lie. But right here in these verses, Mark challenges that way of thinking. He says, no, 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 this is history. This actually happened. And if you're a Christian, you need to have confidence in this. And if you're not a Christian, you need to explore this because this is the biggest claim you're ever going to hear. And there's all sorts of apologetic arguments we could explore today. Where did the body go? What did you do? All that. I just, I just want to stick with what Mark says here in these few verses. Partly because, well, mainly because we're in this Mark series. But also because Mark gives us the answers right here. He presents this as factual history, and he does it in at least two ways. First way is the way he uses women as the main characters. Three times, if you look back into the last end of chapter 15, three times in eight verses, Mark writes down the name of the women who saw this. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and so on. Why does he write down their names? Now, we need to understand that the reason he did is because of the way historians in those days did history. More evidence, more weight, more credence, if you like, was given to eyewitnesses who were still alive. So you can have any evidence you want, but an eyewitness who saw it, who's still alive, their testimony, their evidence carries more weight than anybody else. So Mark is basically saying in these verses, hey, if you want to know, they're still around. He's writing a few years later. If you want to know, they're still around. Here's their names. Go and find them. Go and ask them yourself. That's how history was written, not legends. If it wasn't true, he wouldn't have written their names down because people would have gone and asked them and they said, what are you talking about? No, that's not true. He wrote their names down so people could go and find them and say, is this really, did this really happen? And they say, yeah. That's the way history was written back then. But it's even more of a bigger indication is the fact that women were included at all. Now, we might not like this in our modern world and we get all upset about this kind of thing, but back then, women's testimonies didn't really count for very much. Like, certainly not as much as men's testimonies, anyway. 
There was a guy called Celsus who was a Greek pagan philosopher. Uh, he lived about 80 years after Jesus, and he really hated Christianity. Like, he really did not like it at all. He tried to debunk it all, and he tried to prove that it wasn't real, all right? And writing about the resurrection, the main reason he concluded that it wasn't true, and the main reason that he argued why you couldn't believe it was because, well, we can't believe women, is what he wrote. In fact, he actually wrote, his words, not mine, I do not subscribe to them, do not believe them, do not agree with them entirely, but his words were, we all know that women are hysterical. That was what he wrote. That was his whole main argument. It can't be true because women are hysterical, you can't believe anything they say. I don't agree with that. I don't, whoa, what's that? Some of you are looking into things that are not there. <laughs> Here's the thing, right? This is a serious point, because if Mark were making all of this up, he wouldn't have included women. He would have made it up with some men's voices, men's names. He would have said some blokes seen it, go and ask them. But he used women because why? Because it was the women who saw it, because this is what happened, it was true. And the second thing that Mark really challenges, and this is really very important, is the idea that modern people have that we look back on people of olden times and think, well, they just believed all sorts of things. Like, we know now that that kind of stuff doesn't happen. In those days, because they're not as educated as we are, because history has basically advanced and evolved, and there's this idea that we have, particularly in the West, that things basically get better and better and better, and we get smarter and smarter and smarter, and people back, way back then, not very smart, now we're super smart. Like, the arrogance of people in the West, particularly, okay? And we kind of have this view that, well, back then, people believed things like that because they're a bit simple, a bit uneducated, and a bit gullible. We know it doesn't true. Well, Mark clearly <laughs> makes it really clear. No, they did not think that back then. Look at verse 7. The angel says, But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Now, <laughs> Mark is the shortest of the Gospels, right? There's only 16 chapters. It's like bang, 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 bang. Action, 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 action. He doesn't waste words, Mark. So when something is repeated in Mark's Gospel, you can kind of be safe in your thinking that it was probably mentioned an awful lot of times. So in Mark 8 and Mark 10, if you go back and, and read through it, Jesus says, I will rise on the third day. Now, Mark mentions it several times, which probably means that Jesus said it a lot. I will rise on the third day. I'll rise on the third day. I'll rise on the third day. Now we know the disciples, because we've read through and we've looked through this series. They didn't really understand an awful lot of what Jesus said, but they knew he'd said that. What day are we on now? It's the third day. And they're at, what's going on? Well, there are no male disciples around. The women have come along with spices and perfume to anoint a dead body, because that's exactly what they were expecting, a dead body in the tomb. Now, given that Jesus had said repeatedly, I'm going to rise on the third day, you would be forgiven for thinking that maybe, just maybe, maybe just one of them would have thought, hmm, he's dead. He said, on the third day he will rise. I know this sounds completely crazy, guys. I know there's no way he's possibly going to be alive. But he did say it, and he did announce a lot of other crazy things that we didn't think were possible either. Do you think maybe one of us should just, I know it's mad, but do you think maybe one of us should possibly just go, do you think it's worth checking it out just in case, you know, he was maybe telling the truth? And they, they didn't. Not one of them goes to the tomb to check it out. Why? Because nobody is expecting this. Because dead people don't come back to life. Nobody 
was expecting this to happen. Look at verse 8. Even after the angel says, he did tell you, they're still like, what? <laughs> like at that moment, you go, oh, yeah, he did, didn't he? Whoa, no, they didn't. They were astonished. Why? Because dead people don't come back to life. Us bright, modern people, we all know that. So did those simple, uneducated people. They knew it too. Back then, they didn't believe it any more than people believe it now. So why would Mark include this? Well, he wouldn't. Unless it was what was happened. Unless it was history. See, if you're still skeptical about the resurrection, if you're not a believer, you need to understand that these people were shocked. It completely changed their worldview. They know as well as we do that dead people don't just come back to life unless God. Now, if you don't believe this actually happened, then you at least need to come up with an explanation of why hundreds of people say they saw him and spend the rest of their lives preaching it and actually dying for it. You don't die for things that you know to be false. And here's where faith comes in. Faith occurs when the unexplainable confronts the undeniable. Faith occurs when the unexplainable confronts the undeniable. You may be sitting here today thinking, I have questions that are unexplainable. The resurrection is a miracle, however, that is undeniable. And faith occurs in that moment. We go, oh, wow. It's history that changed the world. And it's history that changed the world for individuals like you and like me. Look at verse 7. But go, this is the angel speaking, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. This is stunning. Just... Just for a moment, imagine what he could have said or what he could have done. Imagine what Jesus could have said. If Jesus was anything like me, imagine what he could have said. The message could have been, go and tell that bunch of cowards that they are faithless fools. Go and tell them, I told them I'd rise on the third day and none of you even bothered to come and check. Go and tell them, I told you you wouldn't believe me. And you said, no, 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 we will believe you. Go and tell them, I said you're going to deny me. And you said, no, 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 we won't deny me. Go and tell them that I said they wouldn't understand. And they all said, no, 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 we do understand. Go and tell them they're a bunch of cowards and a bunch of fools. And they need to apologize. And they need to ask for forgiveness. And if they do, well, I'll think about it and I might. Praise the Lord that I'm not in Jesus, right? <laughs> because Jesus does not work like that his love and his forgiveness is total and it's unconditional and it's absolutely stunning look what he says he says Peter by name why why mention Peter specifically now can you imagine perhaps being there with the disciples as the women came and shared this news with them if he just said disciples then Peter probably would most likely assume that Jesus didn't mean him because Peter so often did far worse than any of the others. Peter frequently got it wrong. Peter was the one who Jesus himself had to tell off publicly, rebuked. And in an honor-shame culture, doing that publicly was a big deal. Peter was the guy who used violence when Jesus preached peace. And worse, Peter was the guy who denied Jesus three times to a little girl. Peter would have been racked with guilt 
racked with anguish and racked with shame. But Jesus calls him by name. And we know, because we've read the rest of the Bible, that Peter ends up being one of the main leaders in the early church and he ends up writing some of the books of the Bible. How on earth does he go from there to there? He was the biggest mess up of all of them. And in the answer, we see the stunning nature of the gospel. You see, God in granting salvation doesn't just tolerate you and reluctantly say, okay, come on then, you can come along for the ride. No, no, no. He goes above and beyond. He goes out of his way to redeem and restore and to bring you into the fullness of new life. You see, because Peter's screw up was the biggest, his repentance would be the deepest, and his understanding of the grace of God would be the most profound, and that alone would qualify him to be used by God in unimaginable ways. This is the gospel. He knows you by name, and he calls you by name this morning. See, God takes specialists in mess-ups and specialists in failures, and he turns around the whole story, and it's all a work of grace. And salvation comes through the weakness of Jesus dying on the cross for you. And salvation comes, and it's received when you admit that you are weak, when you admit your inability to sort it out, when you admit that you need a savior. And here's the thing, we all hate admitting that we've failed. We avoid it all the time. We always seek to put the blame elsewhere. We heard it in Becky's testimony. I blamed everybody else. Never once thought it might be me. It's always somebody else's fault. It's because of that. It's because of the way I was brought up. It's because of this. It's because of this. It's because... Why do we hate admitting that we've messed up? Why? Because it feels like death. And we hate death. But if we accept it, it and accept that it is death, then it drives us deeper into the gospel. And the good news of the gospel is that death always becomes resurrection, always becomes new life. You are saved not by your work or not by your performance, but by Jesus' work and Jesus' perfect performance. And because of the resurrection, your sins are now forgiven, your past no longer defines you, and your future is secure. And this is exactly what Peter realized. As we've already looked at, Peter felt that he had let Jesus down so much that his relationship with Jesus, he thought, was beyond repair. Some of us today are sitting here thinking we have let Jesus down so much, our relationship with him is beyond repair. But Peter, says Jesus, but whatever your name is, says Jesus, and here is what Peter eventually wrote in the book of 1 Peter. Chapter 1, verse 3 says, Through the resurrection, we are now born again into a living hope. 1, verse 4, that is kept in heaven for us. There, there are two things that we see here that totally change how, you'll see, how you see yourself. Born again and living hope. Let me just start with living hope. Your hope is whatever you believe gains you acceptance before God. Now, most people believe that God's acceptance of them is based on how good they are, on what they've done or on the fact that actually I'm a decent person I'm not that bad I've not done too many wrong things or how I keep the kind of the tenets of my religion I pray I do this I do this I do this and surely God will be pleased with me and that may work fine for you until you fail like Peter and then you start wondering how good is good enough 
Like at what point do those scales of good and whatever, at what point do the, do the good I'm doing start to be outweighed by the stuff that's not so good? At what point do they tip beyond repair? At what point do I get to the place where I can no longer say on the balance of everything I'm more good than not? The gospel that Peter, Peter understood, the gospel that is available for us today is that Christ earned our acceptance in our place. He paid the penalty for our sin. He lived the life we should have lived and never could and died the death that we should have died and then he defeated it. And the resurrection is now God's declaration that he has accepted Jesus' payment on our behalf. In the resurrection, he declared that Jesus' payment for us was sufficient. And now Jesus stands alive by the very throne of God, testifying to that fact. That's why Peter says, I have a living hope kept in heaven for me because it's safe. Because the living Jesus stands there right now as my acceptance, as your acceptance in heaven. And so whenever an accusation is brought against me, whenever it is pointed out that I have fallen short of the glory of God, I've fallen short of perfection, which is pretty much my entire life, whenever an accusation is brought against me, whenever a reason is, is shed against me that I should be rejected from God's presence, Jesus stands there and says, no, 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 I paid, the sin, paid for that sin for him. And right now, no accusation can be brought against me because Jesus is alive, interceding at the right hand of the Father. He has paid the penalty. And every time, every single time, I fall short of the glory of God, Jesus stands and says, I've got it covered. And so I repent, I say, I'm sorry, and I say, thank you, Jesus, you've forgiven me. And at every moment, he stands there firm. And because he defeated death, and because he defeated Satan, and because he defeated every sin, who's going to take him on now? He rules and he reigns with absolute authority. In the resurrection, I now have a living hope that is no longer based on me. And furthermore, Peter says, in the resurrection, I am born again, which means God has started the process of new life in me. The power of the resurrection turned Peter, a Jesus-denying coward, into Peter, the rock of the church. And that is the same power that is alive and at work in you right now. The if you're a Christian here today, the same power that conquered the grave lives in you. If you're not a Christian here today and think you do not understand how messed up my life was. Well, we had two testimonies earlier. I mean, they're pretty much, they shared it publicly, so it's not like I'm exposing them. They were pretty much rock bottom. Nowhere else you could go. The power of the resurrection transformed and changed everything this church actually is filled with people with stories just like that people who made tragic mistakes people who who gave in and give their life to all sorts of vices of the world drink drugs sex the works people who have been unfaithful to their spouses people who've been kicked out of school people who spent time in jail people who have hit rock bottom people who've been filled with bitterness and hate and racism and all all sorts of things but God changed them. Not because they were decent people who needed a second chance, but because they were dead people whom he made alive. Do you feel like you're too messed up for God to be interested in you? That your mistakes are too severe? That your addictions are too strong? God breathed life into a dead body. He breathed courage into cowardly Peter. He breathed love into murderous Paul. And when you believe, he'll breathe new life into you as well. Peter's future was secure. 
He says in 1 Peter 1 verse 4, through the resurrection we now have an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. As you get older, you, you kind of realize that everything perishes, everything fails, and everything spoils, right? When you're a kid, you don't think it does. And then you get to a point, you think, I used to be able to run around all day, party all night, and get up the next morning, and nothing was a problem. I, I, I can barely get through a day and then wake up the next morning without anything feeling like it's all breaking. And I'm only 35. I am dreading being 75. <laughs> If this is the state of me right now, my <laughs> hand looks at me in the morning and is like, oh. I'm like, that's the mirror, babe. Like, this guy, that's what we look like every morning. <laughs> Some of you will be like, did he just cuss his wife and everyone? No. Here's my point. Everything we know and love in this life perishes and fades and spoils. Money all goes eventually. Kids, they grow up and leave you. Friends, they'll lay you down. Material stuff, you can have it all. Becky said it. Literally had it all. I know more of her story. She had it all. What does that bring you? Can't hold on to any of it. You want to know the major difference between a Christian and somebody who's not a Christian? It's how they approach that reality that in the end everything fades and everything spoils. And one day we will all die. And how you face that reality, that marks the difference between Christian and non-Christian. There's a guy called Bertrand Russell who wrote, he's a philosopher who wrote a thing called Why I Am Not a Christian. And he said that as he neared death, the darkness that I have always feared is finally overtaking me. There is no justice If you happen to be one of the ones whom fortune fills with tragedy, you just have to live as one of the losers in life. I always just contrast that with a lady called Joni Erickson Tada. Some of you know her story. She had a diving accident and she was paralyzed. She ended up in a wheelchair and she always said how sad she felt. She used to be able to run and walk, but now she couldn't run or walk. And she said one day she caught herself envying people who knelt to pray. She couldn't do it anymore. And then she said, it occurred to me, I have an inheritance being kept for me in heaven. One day I'm going to get a new resurrection body. And the first thing I'm going to do with my new legs is drop to glorified needs and worship Jesus who saved me. And then I'll do a (laughs) backflip. That's the assurance of the resurrection. That's the future that for those of us who are in Christ, who have put their trust in Jesus, who accepted that Jesus is Lord and Jesus is Savior, that is the future. The resurrection changes everything for us now and more importantly, everything for all time. You see, faith has a starting point. It's a basis and it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection tells me that Jesus is who he says he is, that this is not just some big fairy tale, Resurrection tells me that he is making me into someone new and that he's coming back for me. What do you believe of Jesus today? Do you know him? Can you join Peter and say, I have got it so badly wrong, but the grace of God is sufficient for me that I now have been born again to a new and living hope. 
Salvation is on offer. It's done. But you have to receive it. Maybe you've been in church, but this has never really been real to you. There's an opportunity for it to be real right now. Maybe it's kind of moment you thought, I've never really thought about this before. It's an opportunity to explore it from this day on. Maybe you've never really made us your own serious decision to follow Jesus. There's an opportunity to decide now. Some of you have been faithless. Feel like you've denied Jesus. He calls you right now, by name, lovingly and gently. And he's here right now. Let's sort this mess out, he says. Some of us, it's just a reminder for our souls of what's of most importance. This life fades, but I'm not living for this life anymore. I'm living for the next. Which means I'm free to enjoy the things of this world, but it doesn't define me anymore. My future is fixed firmly on my hope that is kept in heaven for me. So good things in this world, thank you, Jesus. Bad things in this world, help me, Jesus. But my eyes are fixed on the next. Can we stand? We're going to sing in a moment. I'm going to ask you to do something real brave right now. going to ask you to imagine for a moment there's no one else here it's just you and Jesus most of us are really quite afraid if we're honest of just being by ourselves we like the noise and the distraction because it distracts us from the gnawing truth in our souls everything's not quite right not as it should be most of us carry feelings of guilt or shame fear the resurrection is evidence and power that you don't need to carry feelings of guilt shame or fear anymore because Jesus on the cross took on all those forces and he defeated them and he rose again to new life and now he says if you believe in me and trust in me you're a new creation the old is gone the new has come